0: This is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and so we're taking a little break from our normal uh, study of the book of Romans uh, to address a different topic, but uh, in God's providence, as we've just been reading through uh, the book of Psalms, um, we didn't plan it this way, but on Sanctity of Life Sunday, uh, we came to came to these words of the the sins of the people. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean in their acts and played the whore in their deeds. And that is, Sanctity of Life Sunday is pointed right at the the atrocity of abortion. We as a church stand in, in... Aggressive opposition to abortion. It is a great scourge, a great wickedness, a great idolatry of our nation and of our land. And we as those who who affirm the sanctity of life, that, that all people are made in the image of God. And I just want to share with us, before we send the kids out, one practical way we can do that on a weekly basis. And if you would, church, just repeat after me, and we'll take this pledge together. I will never... Give a dirty look to any parent in this church. Thank you. That is a practical way we can live that out. If we sit and fume over the noise of kids, if we sit angrily, I I read the words of one man who serves in the church, it appears, I don't know the guy, speaking in his vitriol and anger about kids in the church making noise and messing up their program. And I thought, what could be farther from the heart of Christ than that? I, I, what, 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 what could there possibly be for us to get angry about if we hear kids in the church? Might I remind us, we didn't used to have kids in this church. And and so I would just encourage us, one way to put hands and feet to our, our pro-life position, our anti-abortion, our holding up of, of the, the sanctity of human life is... If you hear kids making too much noise and you think the parents might be deaf, I don't know if they notice. Instead of sinning and being angry in your seat, you could just get up and walk over to them and serve them. Say, "Hey, can I can I take your little one? Can I help you out?" You'll be blessing them, you will be greatly blessed because believe me, you're not listening to the what's happening anymore. At that point, you're just sitting with your anger. And this isn't addressing any particular problem that's been happening here, by the way. i are just thinking about it this morning, thinking it is a privilege and a joy to hear the sounds of little ones in the congregation of God's people. God has given us these children. They are not a hindrance to us. They are not a hurdle to us. They are a blessing and a heritage to us. So with that being said, we have a nursery uh, for kids who can crawl through age three, down those steps, down the second set of steps, that is their parents for you, as a blessing to you. It is not there because we're trying to kick your kids out. And if you choose to keep your kids with you, we do have a room right there uh, with the windows right behind us where uh, you can go if they get a little restless at, at different points. But I just wanted to give us that encouragement. Again, it's not pointed at anybody. I don't know of dirty looks being thrown around or anything like that. Uh, but I read the words of, of this individual this week, and I thought, boy, isn't that the way it goes for young parents in church? Who, who, what could be less welcoming? than to come to the family of God for corporate worship and to be made to feel like you're a problem or a burden. May it never be, Maple Grove, that we do that. Well, let's open our Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 3. Because it is Sanctity of Life Sunday, we are, are diverting and providentially, we read those words of the, the sin of the people, of sacrificing their children to idols and It's not hard for us as we read that, particularly on this day, to think, boy, isn't that the sin of our nation? Let's stand together as we hear the word of the Lord. We're going to read all of Isaiah chapter 3. I trust our legs can take it. As we hear God's word, God's proclamation of judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. Hear the word of the Lord now from Isaiah chapter 3. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all the support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful magician, the expert in charms. I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. The people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For man will take hold of his brother and in the house of his father. Are, Are there signs that we could look to to see that a wicked nation is being judged? If God were judging our nation, would we know it? How would we know it? Would we recognize those signs? We know that God has judged nations before because of their wickedness. He threw Adam and Eve out of paradise because of their sin. He judged the entire pre-flood world because they turned themselves away from God and sinned exceedingly. God judged Sodom. And Gomorrah, because of their wicked deeds, he judged Egypt for their refusal to obey his commands. As we have just read in our passage today, he judged Israel for her rebellion. And all the nations throughout all of the centuries that God has judged have had this one thing in common. The people of the nations were convinced. The people of the nations had promised themselves that they had nothing to fear from God because the people did not fear God, because they did not fear his judgment, they recklessly indulged themselves in whatever wanton sinful pleasures and wickedness they saw fit. They did whatever they wanted to do. The people spoke and acted openly against God. They spoke and acted openly against the law of God, the good and pure law of God. And so all of these previous nations, the people of these nations, blatantly invited God's judgment upon themselves. And so, in Isaiah chapter 3, Isaiah not only prophesies that one day God will judge Jerusalem and Judah for their wickedness, but he also sets out for us the signs that this righteous judgment is taking place. And And the goal is so that when this judgment comes upon them, the faithful remnant of God will recognize what it is that's happening to them. In in Isaiah 3, Isaiah gives this judgment of the prophecy of the fall of Judah and Jerusalem. And it's about 200 plus years before that is actually going to take place. At that time, the backbone of the nation is going to be ripped from her. All the princes, all the mighty men of valor, all the craftsmen, all the skilled workers, thousands of captives are going to be carried away into exile, into captivity. Verses 8 and 9, as we read, explain why God is going to bring this judgment on the Israelites. We read in verse 8, Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen because of their speech and their deeds are against the, the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces witnesses against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Isaiah shows us here a society that is ripe for judgment, a society that has forsaken its moral compass, a society that has turned away from God and embraced idolatry. He he describes the people who have willfully provoked God's anger by insulting him, by turning away from him, by worshiping idols. And Isaiah warns that to do such things, to do such wicked deeds, to do them openly, to do them flagrantly, to do them right in God's face, will surely provoke God's wrath upon them. God will not be mocked. Sins that the Israelites would once have done in darkness. That, that they would have tried to keep hidden. That they would have been ashamed of are now being done publicly, brazenly, openly. The Israelites were now even speaking openly, without shame to one another about their sin and their immorality. Proudly boasting of their debauchery and their wickedness. The people deliberately mock. God. They openly commit their sin in full view of of God's eyes without a hint of remorse, without a hint of shame. They are rebellious. They are unholy. They are brazen. They are defiant. They are proving with their words and their actions that they reject God and they reject his good and holy law. They are so proud of their sinful deeds, Isaiah says, their rebellion is written all over their faces. They're not even attempting to hide it. They're not even trying to pretend. They are thoroughly, wholeheartedly unrepentant. And because of this, because of this wickedness, because of this prideful rebellion, they will fall. The people of Israel will inflict God's wrath upon themselves. God will be the one bringing judgment upon them. And as we read it, that judgment is going to fall hard on them. But verse 9 says, it's they who have brought this evil on themselves. They have no excuse. They have no grounds for complaint when this judgment comes to them. Surely they will complain. Surely they will grumble. This is not fair. God, how could you do this to us? You're mistreating us. But those complaints, those arguments will have no ground. This judgment is simply a paycheck, and they have earned it. Every penny, every ounce of judgment is well and truly earned. The fault lies 100% with themselves because they continually provoked God through their open rebellion and wickedness. And so this judgment... This coming destruction from God is righteous. It is right. It's shocking to think of this kind of judgment coming upon God's chosen people, upon this nation who were so blessed, so privileged by God, to think that they have now fallen so far. That God says, woe to you. That they've now incurred upon themselves these judgments that that Isaiah proclaims. Look again at verse 1. Behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah support and supply. All the support of bread, all the support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful magician, the expert in charms. I will make boys their princes. Infants shall rule over them. The people will oppress one another. Everyone is fellow and everyone is neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and despised to the honorable. Verse 12, he says, my people, infants are their oppressors. Women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. What a tragic picture of decline! For God's chosen nation. What a tragic fall from such great heights. A society that once worshipped God but is now broken and fallen. Turned to wickedness. Rejecting morality. A society that has wholeheartedly embraced idolatry and rebellion. And because of this, God has decided the time for judgment has come. Isaiah here uses the very solemn title in verse 1. The Lord God of hosts. Literally, the Lord Yahweh of hosts. This, this emph- th- he's emphasizing this is coming from God. Is God pronouncing this judgment upon you? Is God bringing this judgment upon you? God himself has, has set himself against you because of your wickedness. Every support, every earthly security is going to be ripped away from them. The Lord of hosts will strip away their power and their provision. Because of their wickedness, everything that they need to sustain order and and peace in their society is going to be removed from them. And we should remember as we read this list of things that God's going to strip away from them. It's really the entire infrastructure of a sound and good government. And a sound and good government is a gift from God to us. Governments are put in place by God. Governments are put in place by God for a purpose, and that purpose is to act for the good of the people. A a well-regulated nation is a glorious gift From God. Rightly ordered judges and soldiers and engineers and leaders are a beautiful gift as they work together to aid one another in the common goal of the good of the people. That is a beautiful, God ordained gift to us in His common grace. But when God is punishing a nation, he removes this harmony from its governmental leaders. He removes this, this right use of the government. Divine judgment begins when God removes good leadership. It says in verse 2, the mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, all removed, all taken away. God's removal of good leadership from Jerusalem and Judah will leave them in a disastrous Situation: A once wealthy and secure nation will find itself struck with poverty and fear. All of their wealth and comfort stripped away from them. Isaiah says the people will be without bread and water. It's, it, he's painting this picture of a, a, a of an ancient city being besieged by an outside army that has surrounded them and cut off all supply. There's no food coming in. We don't have bread to eat. We don't have water to drink. And the fact is. The people are being besieged. They're being besieged by God, which is a terrifying thought. God's going to cut off all your supply. God had given the nation good military leaders to protect them. But Isaiah shows us a military leadership that's going to be completely weakened. Their defensive might, their offensive might will be diminished. Their strength will be removed. God will make the military leaders soft and effeminate, unfit for war. Once proud traditions of bravery will be lost. Those holding the highest ranks will become just cowardly political appointees who can't do anything. The military force will be used not to protect the people, but to oppress the people. Skill and wisdom in government and leadership will be lost. Elders, people of distinction, those who have the ability to govern well, will be removed and replaced with childish, unqualified people in their place. Leadership of the nation will fall into disrepute and immorality. God had given the nation good religious leaders in the past to keep the nation running well, to bring God's blessing upon it. But good priests will be replaced with incompetent priests, compromised priests, weak priests. priests. Because even the religious leaders are going to be compromised and immoral, the nation will completely lose its moral compass will veer off towards immorality, veer off towards idolatry, veer off towards destruction. God had given the nation good tradesmen in the past. Those who innovate and create and build to improve living conditions. But that leadership will also be lost. Living conditions will worsen. God had given good judges to punish the guilty, to protect the innocent. But God will remove wise judges from Jerusalem and Judah and replace them with childish, ignorant, tyrannical, unrighteous judges who don't rule impartially, but show partiality and a lack of wisdom in their ruling. When all the strong, righteous, courageous, wise men of character are despised when they are replaced with incompetent, weak, godless fools, the judgment of God is evident upon a nation. Slowly, subtly, God replaces competent men with the childish and the immature. Children, children who are incapable of leading their own families, who lack wisdom, who have no sense of what it takes to lead, delicate, effeminate men without courage, incapable of leading people. God replaces the strong and the wise with these fools. And in the absence of good, godly, masculine leadership, in a reversal of creation order, Isaiah says, tyrannical women are going to step in. This is, this is Genesis 3. This is the curse of Genesis 3 being played out Isaiah makes it clear that's what's going on when we see this happen. God is angry. We hear the anger of God, don't we, in this passage? God, God is angry with Jerusalem and Judah. This is the judgment that is coming to them, and he does not do these things lightly. This is not a whim on God's part. This is not a bad day. They have been exceedingly wicked for a long time. This is the just Results of their wickedness, owed to them, deserved to them. God is slow to anger. God is relentlessly patient, but He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. So we have to ask as we see this shocking and horrifying judgment. If God were judging our nation, would we recognize the signs? When God blesses a nation, he raises up strong men. That's a sign of the blessing of God on a nation. Men who can defend the nation. Men who can defend the nation against violence. When God blesses a nation, he he raises up wise men. Men who can contend with those who would seek to destroy the nation through deception and and trickery and lies and foolishness. So we need to ask ourselves, those who rule over this nation, those who lead this nation, are they strong men? Are they wise men? Are they morally righteous Do they root out wickedness, or do they promote wickedness? Do they cover for wickedness? What do the signs tell us? Is God judging our nation? If God was judging our nation, we'd see an almost total lack of wise, righteous men of conviction in office. Instead, we'd see incompetence. We'd see corruption We'd see childishness and foolishness and immorality. If God was judging our nation, we would see those who are woefully and willfully irresponsible being in charge. We'd see a weak government. With everyone in leadership trying to take advantage of everyone else for their own personal gain. We'd have to use Isaiah's words, boys as our princes." Infants as our oppressors, we would have unqualified women ruling over us. Because of this, we would see our society fragmenting, both socially and morally. We'd see divisions and hostilities between neighbors, between the young and the old, between men and women, between the rich and the poor, across ethnic divides. As Isaiah says in verse 5, the people will oppress one another. Everyone is fellow and everyone is neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and despised to the honorable. We'd see our leaders prepared to accept virtually any philosophy, no matter how morally degrading or foolish, as long as it allowed them to remain in power. Those whose job it was to guide our nation, to seek our prosperity, would instead lie to us. They would willfully mislead us. They would take us away from the safe and narrow path of righteousness and they would move us toward the wide road that leads to destruction. If God were judging our nation, there would be a feeling of despair dominating even our elections. It would be hard to find people worthy of voting for. And then even if we did find someone worthy, a fear that the system was rigged would make it so we felt like we couldn't even trust whatever the elections were that were coming up. If God were judging our nation, we would see the church turn away from God's word. We would see it move towards and embrace and embrace paganism and idolatry. We would see weak effeminate cowards in the pulpit who cast off biblical teaching in the name of inclusivity so that people don't say mean things about them. We would see prophets who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We would see our churches shifting with the current value judgments of this wicked world, forsaking reverence for entertainment value, desiring man's approval more than God. If God was judging our nation, we would see our leaders boasting of their transgressions without shame, trampling every distinction between right and wrong, true and false, righteousness and wickedness. We would see God honoring traditions thrown away, we would see the open celebration and flaunting of wickedness. We would see it even down to the corruption and indoctrination of our children in immorality from the highest levels to the lowest levels. We'd see our leaders in their weakness and arrogance and tyranny seek to remove the ability of God's people to properly raise and lead their own families. We would see the nation presuming to have authority over what our children are taught or what they are not allowed to be taught, even in our own homes. We would see the dreams and imaginings of children taken on and accepted as revelations of wisdom that must be upheld, that must be obeyed. We know that God judges nations when they surrender to wickedness. So is God judging our nation? Is God judging our nation because our government accommodates, condones, provides for the slaughter of 70 million little boys and girls in the wombs of their mother and fights violently to defend them, to propagate them? to ensure that that continues. Just two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, over 200 of our representatives voted against providing care for babies who had already been born alive, but whose mothers wanted to murder them. It, it, It narrowly passed the House, this bill of protection for babies who had been born alive, who were sitting in the room right in front of us, Now, they're no no more human than the child that has just been conceived in its mother's womb. But imagine the wickedness to look at the newborn in front of you and say, we must defend the right to murder this child. And it barely passed the house, this bill of protection for these babies. But here's the thing. It really doesn't matter because our president and our Senate have vowed it will not pass with them. Did God judge our nation because of this? Is God judging our nation because our government celebrates immorality? Do we get to to... to turn the White House into a rainbow flag boldly, proudly before the eyes of God and God not judge us? Do we get to be like Sodom and Gomorrah and give give ourselves wholly to the promotion of wickedness? The wickedness of the transgender, the LGBT agendas, and that is what they are. They are agendas. They are ideologies. Even pushing these things onto our children through our schools. Is God judging our nation for these things? We must understand this, friends. The leaders of any nation are not there by chance. It's not Satan who put them in place. If you look at this, this this current administration and you're like, they're so bad that the devil's really fighting against us to put these people in power, you are dead wrong. That is not what the Bible says. It is not Satan who puts leaders in place. We saw this in Romans 13 just a few weeks back. I guess a lot of weeks back. It's God who puts rulers in their position. And more than that, he not only puts them in position on purpose, he could change their hearts any moment he wanted to and it would not be difficult for him whatsoever. Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord and he channels it wherever he wants. So what does it mean when we look at the leaders we have? Not just the leaders we have, the leaders we have had for a good while. This administration, by the way, is not the first time we've had a president act like a petulant child. That started with a guy that a lot of us in this room voted for. What does it mean when we look at the leaders we have? Well, John Calvin puts it pretty, pretty concisely, what it means. When God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. God gave us the rulers we've got. As we look at the state of our nation, as we read Isaiah's words, I trust we didn't even need to walk through what it might look like in our nation for this kind of judgment to come upon us because as we read the words of Isaiah, we were already going, oh my goodness, that's us. It is clear we are under the judgment of God. Not under the threat of future judgment. We are under the judgment of God right now because of our wickedness. It is well-deserved. What does it mean then? What does that mean for us? Are we without hope? What do we do when we hear this? We read the words of these prophecies and we think, oh, what are we to do? What should we be doing as citizens of a nation that is under judgment? Do we just give up? As the old saying goes, there's no need to polish the brass on a sinking ship. We just cloister ourselves behind the church walls and we hold on tight and we hope that this whole secret rapture thing Left Behind talks about is true. And we get zapped out. Is that our call? God forbid. God forbid that we would think that way. We are God's people. Acts 17, 26 says God has ordained the times and the places in which we live. Christian, God ordained that you would live right here, right now. So we are here right now for a purpose. We are here on purpose and we are here for a purpose. And so let me just close by reminding us of another exceedingly wicked people. If we are under the judgment of God, nobody's ever deserved it any more than we do. This nation deserves the judgment and the wrath of God. Just like Jerusalem and Judah, just like us, another people, another people who were no better than we are, and we are no worse than they were, judgment was coming for Nineveh. Because of the great wickedness of that people. Because of the great sin of that people flagrantly before the eyes of God. But friends, Nineveh was not destroyed. Nineveh had Jonah. Jonah was far from perfect. That's why we've got the book of Jonah. What did Jonah do? God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and Jonah said, I'm going as far as I can the other direction. I'm absolutely not doing that. And then Jonah stayed mad the whole time. And when the people of Nineveh repented, and the book of Jonah closes with Jonah sitting angrily outside of the city, hoping that God might still rain down fire upon them. And his final words are, Yeah, I think I got a right to be mad about this. I knew you were slow to anger and that you'd forgive them. It's not right at all. Close the story of Jonah. He was far from perfect. But Nineveh had Jonah, and Jonah had been sent to them by God himself. That's what makes the difference. It's not the righteousness of Jonah. It's not the wisdom of Jonah. It is not the goodness of Jonah. We don't see any righteousness or goodness of Jonah in that story. We see hypocrisy. We see cowardice. We see anger and bitterness, resentfulness, a complete lack of grace. That's what we see. But God had sent him. God brought him, most importantly, with a message. God brought him with the very words of God. And that made all the difference. Just like Nineveh had Jonah, brothers and sisters, our nation has us. This nation, under judgment, has us. Jerusalem and Judah had Isaiah. The land of Nod had Noah. Sodom and Gomorrah had lot throughout history. God has always had a chosen remnant within a nation to proclaim His word, to warn that nation of coming judgment. And so Christian, what ought we to do as we, we see our nation under judgment from God? We take heart. Because it is true that Judah and Jerusalem were destroyed, but Nineveh, which is every bit as wicked, was not. God may yet use us, his remnant, his people to spare our nation in his mercy. God sent Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh that they might hear the truth, that they might repent and be saved. And they heard and they repented. And they were saved. And friends, God has given us a far better message than Jonah had. Jonah came to them with the word of God. And the word was, you got a couple days and then God is going to kill you. And God used that message to grant to the people of Nineveh repentance. And to relent in his judgment We have got the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel that Paul says in Romans 1 is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Perhaps it is through our proclamation of God's word, of God's truth. Perhaps it is through our prayers. Perhaps it is through our tears. Perhaps it is through our love in action that God intends to save this nation. Perhaps we are this nation's ark, this nation's prophetic voice. Perhaps our witness, perhaps our Holy Spirit-empowered faithfulness, perhaps our salt and light, our visible example will be used to open the eyes of the blind, to bring the word of God to those who are perishing and to rescue them. Brothers and sisters, we cannot hide. We must not run away. Like Jonah, God calls us. Christian, he calls you. He calls you to preach the word. To preach the gospel. That gospel begins with a statement, a sure promise of impending judgment. He calls you to preach his word, to stand for righteousness, to, to oppose the darkness of this wicked generation and to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our message. That is the gospel. The just judgment of God on sin and on sinners who are his enemies in their unrighteousness and the glorious life, death, and resurrection and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all who believe, we must proclaim the whole counsel, the whole message of this gospel, and point to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only rescue. The solution to this is not—it's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not doing better. It's not getting back to the old ways. It is the sinless life, the substitutionary death, the glorious resurrection, the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ that is our only hope. As Paul Washer says, the judgment of God against this nation will not be turned by a more conservative president, but by the repentance of its people. But the opening of eyes, the the changing of hearts, the giving of the gift of repentance, the the giving of the gift of saving faith are the work only of God by His Holy Spirit. Only according to His all-wise eternal purposes. It's not something we can manufacture. It's not something we can make happen. And we can rest in the fact that it's His work. What is our work? What is our duty before the Lord? It is simply... Faithful obedience. Faithful obedience to this mission, to this calling that he has set before us. Take the gospel to a world that stands condemned. And here's what we know. We don't know what will become of the United States of America. Every great empire before us has fallen we too are capable of falling. If we do not turn, we surely will. But we do know this. This mission, this mission that we've been sent on by the Lord Jesus Christ will succeed. The nations will bow in obedience to Christ just as Jesus said they would. Jesus Christ is Lord Not just of some invisible heavenly place. He is the Lord and Master of Topeka, Indiana, of Shipshawana, of Middlebury, of Goshen, even, of the United States, of this entire world, of all the universe. He is the King who is reigning now and will reign forever, and his gospel will triumph in all the earth. So take heart. He's already overcome the world. Our enemy is defeated. I know it doesn't look like that when we look at the world around us. But the Lord Jesus is already victorious. So our calling is a simple one. To lay down our lives, to take up our cross, and to follow him. That's how the gospel will triumph in the earth. That is how the gospel has always advanced. And if our nation is to be saved, that's how our nation will be saved. May God grant to us the courage and the faithfulness of simple obedience to the call. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, even even as we read this passage, which frightens us, which causes us to shudder, even as we look at our own nation and we see that the signs, the marks of a nation under judgment from you, just and deserved judgment, we plead to you on our nation's behalf that you would grant to us repentance. Grant to us repentance from this great atrocity, the sacrificing of our sons and our daughters to idols, the murder of millions Grant to to us repentance from our celebration of immorality and unrighteousness. From our celebration of those sins which which mark the, the heights of rebellion. Grant to us repentance. Grant to our nation to turn from this wickedness and to turn to you. Grant to our leaders to become convicted of their unrighteousness and rebellion and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. We pray, God, that you would spare this nation, that this nation would be a city set on a hill for this world in desperate need. But Lord, we pray these things not knowing how you will answer our prayers for our nation, but knowing what your word says is true about your gospel. And so we pray you would use us to be those who would take this gospel to the very ends of the earth, commanding all to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, teaching them to obey all that you have commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, resting in the knowledge that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to the Lord Jesus Christ who is seated on his throne putting every enemy under his feet even now who rules and reigns in glory and might who will surely return for us but has sent his spirit to dwell within us to empower our faithful witness we pray God that you would give us the courage and the boldness to lay down our lives for the sake of this kingdom and for your glory and out of love For those whom you have created in your image that are far from you. May us be, as we sang together this morning, an army bold, whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. We pray, God, that you would empower and enable us to do this. We pray, God, that you would not allow us to rest easy in our pews if we are being disobedient to this call. Thank you, Lord, for the grace you have shown us in Christ, that we, we rest secure knowing that whatever comes to our nation, we do plead with you, Lord, that it would be spared. We rest secure knowing that for all who are in Christ, we are held secure in your hands. So we trust in you. We glory in you. We pray, God, that you would cause us to be increasingly faithful in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.